Today's episode is brought to you by Textilia. Textilia is the online sewing community you've been waiting for. Built for all types of sewists, including garment makers, quilters, and textile artists, as well as business owners. Plan and document your projects, log your stash, search the community-managed database of patterns and fabrics, and connect with other members and businesses all in one easy-to-use website. Join today at textilia.com. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 72 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about natural dyeing with my guest, Christine Vehar. Christine is a natural dyer and teacher. She's the founder of A Verb for Keeping Warm, a natural dyeing studio, yarn, and fabric shop located in Oakland, California. Her work is a culmination of knitting and sewing lessons learned from her grandmother, her time spent with nomadic embroiderers in the great run of Kutch, India, and her life natural dyeing in California. Her first book, The Modern Natural Dyer, was released in October of 2015 and was published by Abrams. And Christine Behar, I'm really excited to talk to you. Welcome. Hi, Abby. Hi. Um, so I want to get started by talking a little bit about your dye studio and shop, a verb for keeping warm. Um, oh. I've heard about it for many years. I know people who've been there. I haven't been myself. Um, but I've heard it described as one of the best yarn fiber fabric stores known to mankind. And <laughs> tell us a little bit about that space. Um, what is it like? Like, do you get a lot of foot traffic? Where are you? We're right on the border of Oakland and Berkeley. And our block was vacant for a very, very long time. And a coffee shop moved in on the corner. And I'd been looking at this building for a long time, really um, intrigued by it, loved the architecture of it. And when that coffee shop went in, I kind of felt like, okay, like my customers are going to love having this coffee shop. And I can envision them taking classes and spending time at Verb and having a place to eat and drink. Um, and the person who opened it was really community oriented as well. So kind of conducive to the way that um, I envisioned my business. Um, so once he opened that, which is called Actual Cafe, um, then I started talking with the um, landlord and the real estate agent in order to move into my space. So we do get foot traffic for sure, um, and we continue to get more foot traffic, but definitely a big part of my business is based kind of in an online sense, and we have a lot of people who visit from all over the world and kind of make the trek to over for keeping warm, um, like from San Francisco, for instance, which I'm always extremely grateful that they've taken the time to come all that way. And... Yeah, and then we have people just in the Bay Area also that come from all over to come and take classes and what have you. We have a really big uh, Sacramento contingent. Sacramento's about mm, an hour and a half away. Um, so, yeah, people come from all over. Yeah, so it's become basically like a destination for a lot of people. I know it would be for me if I was ever traveling in that area. Um, that's wonderful. So um, where did the name come from? It's I think you have perhaps one of the most unusual names for a store like this so or a shop like this. So where did that name come from? How did that occur to you? 
Yeah, so there's this uh, archaeologist named Elizabeth Wayland Barber, and she's written a few books. One of them is called Women's Work. And the book, the premise of it is that, well, what she does is she goes around the world and she looks at the oldest textile fragments that we have today. And she tries to ascertain who made them, um, how they were made, And so part of that is going and working with um, linguists and looking at dead languages. And there's a a dead language that is very close to Estonian. And in that language, there was a verb for keeping warm. And I like to think about how, um, you know, kind of the pillars of humanity would be something like shelter, uh, clothing, and food, And that at that time, it was so important and such a huge part of someone's life to keep warm that they would have this verb and that we no longer kind of have that verb. So thinking about how we can create conversations, bringing textiles kind of back into the forefront is something really intrinsic and important to us as humans. Wow, that is a great story. I love that. That's a really good story. So tell us about the store itself. I know that you have an indoor classroom and an outdoor classroom and a dye garden um, and that you bring teachers in from all over. So I would love to hear a little bit about kind of the structure of the store inside. You walk into the space and it's 1,700 square feet and it's very open And half of the space is dedicated to our indoor natural dye studio, and half of it's dedicated to the retail space and the classroom. Um, And then if you keep walking straight, then you go to kind of our, it's a backyard, it's a patio, but it's um, two levels. And we've built in an educational dye garden. That's also where our outdoor um, classroom is, as well as our outdoor dye studio. Yeah, so I'm pretty dedicated to experiential learning. Love the idea that, you know, you read and you research, but then you go and you practice what you have read and you've researched so you can really understand the process. So when you go to write about it, it's something very familiar to you. And that was a lot of the basis of my work when I lived in India. So education at Verb, I take pretty seriously, and I think it's a really important component especially because I kind of have it as my mission to try to teach as many people to knit and sew as possible. Um, So even if you don't end up maybe a knitter or a sewer, you have a sense in your body what it takes to create things and that there are people around the world making things for us and that maybe we can uh, have a connection to them physically as to the labor put into those items. Wow, that's a wonderful mission and a great way to guide your decision-making as to like what you teach and how you teach it. Um, I think that's terrific. So let's talk a little bit about that time you spent in India because I know you were there twice. You were there once in college and then once after college on a Fulbright. And that those two experiences seem to have been really formative for you as far as your relationship to studying textiles and commitment to textiles. So tell us a little bit about both of those trips. Yeah, I went to India uh, as an undergraduate to study art and architecture. And I got there and there are just textiles everywhere, you know, um, everything from where People would be walking out uh, a warp for weaving on the street um, and dyeing, and to people who would make textiles for themselves personally, like in the form of embroidering applique. 
And I never really thought it was possible to study textiles in academia. It never occurred to me. I grew up um, in Minnesota and visiting my grandma in rural Illinois, where she spent so much time with her friends uh, quilting and knitting and sewing. And I was raised around that and learned within that auspice. So it was kind of like something you did at home and then you maybe went to Joann's and you got some fabric and you sewed it into something I'd never thought about. How is this fabric made? Who makes this fabric? Um, and all of those processes a little bit deeper. So I began looking around and my teachers and my program really were enthusiastic about that and they really promoted it and supported that I look closer at this. So there was a group of nomadic herders who had this beautiful intricate embroidered mainly blouses and they always wore a headscarf and at the ends of their headscarves and they're very striking looking and I was curious about their process and what these things meant to them and so I began speaking with them about their work and came to understand that all of those embroidered kind of things on their clothing were actually symbols and motifs that all had names and I began to be able to see those motifs and symbols within the entire kind of embroidered fabric. And uh, two things kind of happened. And one was, you know, to kind of look at after hearing about the different material changes and motif shifts. And um, I should say that probably the closest community that we would have um, immediate understanding of in our culture would be Amish people. So this very kind of, um, you know, very distinct style of making something and that when you're in that community, you don't make things kind of outside of that style. Um, you stay within that style. So wanting to just, um, understand how things evolved over time, how motifs changed, how materials changed, how the colors changed and who was able to institute that change within the community. And I started kind of noticing and thinking about this idea that, women, non-literate women, were able to record their history in the face of a textile. And that was very interesting to me. And that also textiles, um, which, you know, is kind of, I think, what fashion intended originally to be, which is to communicate kind of who you are, what's important to you, where you find strength. Um, so, for instance, like the Rabari would have um, embroidered a symbol of a, an elephant on their clothing and an elephant, even though they didn't have elephants was something of royalty. So to kind of hold yourself in this kind of regal stature and, um, that kind of thing. And slowly over time, they've been able to come together and buy or, you know, purchase enough land to just build like a single house. So they might go out for like a week or two weeks at a time, but they would come back to this house where they would kind of ultimately keep their textiles kind of maybe where the children would stay. And so the elephant over time evolved into a cupboard. And that became something that was very, you know, regal and amazing to have. Um, and so that so, was like a shift from being a, a really nomadic culture mm -hmm, to being mm -hmm. a culture that had sort of a domestic home. Yes. And that both things are very meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, astute. And so you're reading this history through really women's stitching. Yes. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you were just totally, um, it sounds like, just fascinated and driven to learn about fabric and textiles this way. And um, and were, did you, so when, when you, did you go back again and was that when, you sort of also started thinking about dyeing fabric and natural dyeing? 
Yes. Yeah. So where the Rabari live in the great run of Kutch is this kind of hotbed of just different textile techniques and processes. It's absolutely amazing. And people have been doing them for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. So I went back, you know, to work with the Rabari. That's the name of the, no, no, the nomads further. But I also kind of in my mind knew about this natural dyeing community and was very fascinated about natural dyeing and I had worked at the Textile Museum in Washington, D.C. between my two trips, and I would spend my lunchtime up in their library that had all of these amazing textile books, a lot of them, you know, out of print and what have you. And every time I would read about natural dyeing, I would never be able to understand what they were talking about. I couldn't understand the vocabulary, and it was kind of one of the only things that I would read about that I really couldn't wrap my head around. So I really wanted to be able to see the practice in process. Um, and so when I went back to India as kind of, I had a few different side research projects going on and the dying was definitely one of them. And one of the things, you know, in India, um, processes like natural dying, for instance, they've been going on for so long that, you know, um, they just keep building their dye baths on top of one another. Right. So it's very hard to see the beginning of a process. Right. Like, how did- a dye bath is, I, I, I kind of think of it similarly to like, um, a sourdough starter or something totally. like that, where it's mm-hmm. like this living thing and it, and you just kind of keep feeding it and it keeps going. And so it's not like, well, how did you make that? Yes, Exactly. And I would try asking and the whole concept was even like, what do you mean? Like, how did it start? You know? (laughs) Everyone has a bath. Like, what are you talking about? Interesting. (laughs) You don't have these things in your country that you can just go be part of? Um, So so anyway, um, I did as much research as I could. uh, And then I needed to come back to the United States because, you know, my grant was coming to an end and I didn't necessarily want to come home. I really loved India, um, but it was time to come home. And so when I got back to the United States, I ended up um, finding a woman um, who taught me in more in a linear fashion about natural dyes. I see. In English, which and, was awful. Right. And was, <laughs> was I mean, I, I'm curious as to, you know, was there ever a time in the United States where people did do this? In other words, is this part of U.S. history in some way where we had these dye baths and everybody did this and then it was sort of completely lost and so now it's about like re-educating and relearning? Or was that just really never a part of American history? Do you know? Yeah, well, until 1857, all color was natural. So at that time, um, German scientists were able to synthesize color and could create color on demand. So definitely natural dyeing was part of the process and, you know, U.S. history textiles. And there are people who do reenactments, which I haven't looked too closely at, but I know that they still practice natural dyeing and that um, if you do Google search, you know, you can easily come across them discussing how they're doing natural dyeing just like they did in, you know, 1800 or whatever. Got it. Okay. There was a part of, of American culture that knew, that that held this information. Yes. It's like it was just sort of a loss because, although maybe there was a resurgence in the, in the 70s. Yes, absolutely. And I have a lot of people that do come up to me and tell me that they did natural dine in the seventies. Uh-huh. And I live in California, but 
Right, right. They did natural dyeing in the 70s in California. And and what do people often kind of assume? I mean, I'm sure you meet people who just don't know anything about your shop, don't know anything about your history. You know, you might be um, out somewhere and, um, and, you know, you explain that you're a natural dyer. And what do people automatically assume about natural dyeing that maybe is or isn't true? Oh, okay. The two biggest things, it's toxic and it's not light fast. Mm, it's toxic. That's interesting. They mm-hmm. think it's toxic versus like a writ dye. They don't think that's toxic, but they mm-hmm. think like dying with, you know, matter is toxic. Yeah. I mean, some of it's rooted in, in mordants, which is, so the natural dyeing process very briefly is, um, you first pre-wash, you know, the material you want to dye and then you add a mordant, um, which is a binder and that's done, you know, you, get a bucket of water, pot of water, and you heat it up with the cloth you want to dye and um, you add something. And in our case, we add aluminum potassium sulfate, which is a pickling agent. It's a food grade pickling agent. And then what happens is, is then you go to the dye bath and you add the color and the color is actually attaching to this binder, the mordant, and the mordant is attached to the fiber. So that mordant can be different things. And in the past, it was. So kind of five mordants that you hear tossed around are aluminum potassium sulfate, iron, copper, chrome, and tin. So chrome, tin, and copper, I would never go near. But people have used it, and reenactment people use it. So I think that people automatically, I don't know, there's this, there's a pretty big though kind of thing put out that natural dyeing is toxic. And I just need to say that it doesn't have to be, and it isn't in most cases. I mean, I don't even know if 0.5% of people in the United States even use something like tin or whatever. I don't think anyone uses chrome. I have no idea why you would. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a good deal of chemistry involved here of sort of understanding the chemistry of how these work. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I never took, I went to a high school that didn't require me to take chemistry. Um, I took like botany. And uh, it's interesting as an adult to have had no chemistry background to do what I'm doing. And I, I have to say, I've always been told I wasn't a science and math person, which, you know, and I use science and math all the time. And I feel a little proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> you should. It's complex, you know, and, and the math side of, of both, you know, knitting, of, of, of dying, but also of knitting and sewing. Is it, there's, a, there's some intense math in there as well. Yeah. And I wanted to say to everyone out there that like, you don't have to have any kind of science background or math background to do what I'm doing. And you also could feel very proud of yourself for, you know, doing these things. And I've tried to make it as easy as possible and tried to keep a lot of the chemistry and math kind of behind the scenes. Um, I've taken a big note from cookbooks with my book in the sense that in cooking, you also practice a lot of math and a lot of chemistry, but you don't know you're doing it. Mm, yeah. And you've right. just, I know you've, your book, so we should say the name of your book is The Modern Natural Dyer. It's a comprehensive guide to dyeing silk, wool, linen, and cotton at home. And it's just beautiful. And um, it's a Melanie Fallick book, and I, I love her books. And, um, but you have described this book as sort of your intention behind it as being like a cookbook versus mm-hmm. being kind of like a textbook, of which I know there are, there are many, you know, natural dyeing textbooks. So, what, what was like, what is the difference that you see there between those two types of books and, and why a cookbook type for you? 
Oh, a couple of reasons. So one reason is, um, you know, working with the clients at Verb every day, I see how excited people get about projects, right? They love yarn, and there are definitely people who just fall in love with a skinny yarn and are going to take it home, but then there's projects. You know, you fall in love with a sweater or a scarf or a dress or something like this, right? And you end up learning how to insert a zipper or make a sweater that you didn't think maybe are, you know, that you would ever want to do or learn to do um, because you were so inspired by the end product. And so I'd taken a big note from that. And then also just from being part personally of kind of the cooking revolution in the United States, growing up in the suburbs where when I was little, canned vegetables or whatever, and then having all these kind of cooking shows and cookbooks come out and watching my mom and then me cook food, learn about, you know, your, your food and where it comes from and, um, spending time and having that be a source of joy and play. And that, um, I think again, if you ask most people like kind of straight up, do you want to learn how to make a pie crust? You'd be like, well, that kind of sounds a little daunting or laborious or whatever. But if you see this beautiful pie that Ina Garten has made and you've made other things of hers, you trust her cooking. You're like, okay, maybe I'll try to make a pie crust. I'll make my own pie from scratch. So anyway, I really kind of looked at those two things and thought I really want projects to be in my book and that their most natural dying books don't include projects. And that I think that, um, that's a real kind of disconnect for some people. Um, that perhaps they'd be able to look at these projects and maybe even be an armchair dyer. So maybe you don't want to dye your own materials, you're not there yet, but you love textiles, you love knitting, you love sewing, and you just want to understand more about the materials you're using and that you might then come to purchasing naturally dyed materials from a different kind of knowledge point. Um, And that maybe in the future you would try actually going a step further and dyeing your own materials. And now a word from our sponsor, Textilia. My name's Ariane Ketchatorians, and my partner Bruno and I have started a website called Textilia. And it's uh, it's the uh, mythical Ravelry of sewing. <laughs> I'm a longtime Ravelry member, and I think one of the most important things, and you can really see in Ravelry that we've been careful to study and put into Textilia is how much thought there's been put into the way that the content is structured. So when people are posting sewing projects, they can link it to the company and the pattern and the fabric they used, and everything is interconnected all the time. And then the other side of it is obviously the community aspect. So we've been working to build a community who's really dedicated to Textilia and also build more and more tools for them to connect with each other so you can follow your friends and keep up on what projects they're working on, comment on their projects. We've got forums and we're going to be adding a bunch more community building tools as time goes on. It's one thing that's great about social media is that there's so much easy on the fly documentation of what we're working on. Um, And it's so easy to connect with people, but we lose a little bit of something in that when we post projects there, they kind of have this impermanence. And so Textilia is a great way to both get inspired, connect with your community, and then also document what you're working on and plan it in a way that you can really preserve it and come back to it and 
remember what you did and find it easily. And the stuff that you're working on doesn't just kind of disappear into the ether after a couple of weeks. It's really like building up a record of all of the things that you've sewn. Even though Google is obviously a great search engine, there's just not sewing specific filters on Google. I'm Ariane from Textilia, and you can join today at textilia.com. Also, be sure to sign up for our newsletter because we've been including some special information about companies on our site, such as sale codes that are exclusive to the members of Textilia. So it's a great resource for finding out about new patterns and also getting some special features from businesses. Thank you so much, Textilia. And now back to my chat with Christine. Mm-hmm. And and you see natural dyeing as like a way, another way of enjoying nature, like mm-hmm. how we garden or we go on a hike. Um, and that wearing clothing that's been natural dyed, whether you dye it yourself or you're purchasing clothing that's been dyed naturally by somebody else is like a way to kind of be with nature. And I, I just think that that's really an interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fun today. I don't, um, I'm doing an April Alabama Channon, Natalie Channon, you know, has these wonderful, they're also Melanie Fallick books, um, four or five books rooted in her sewing style. And the two of us are coming together for the month of April and we're kind of doing Alabama Channon, um, modern natural dyer mashup. And I printed for her last summer when she came to visit this piece of fabric with flowers from our dye garden at Verb as kind of a memory of like, you were here and here's a piece of California to bring home with you. And then, um, she's now gone and made that into a tunic and put it on her blog, you know? So it's kind of fun exchange. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just feel like it's a way to capture a moment. It's a way to capture the environment around you. It's something you can keep building on. Once something's mordanted once, you can keep dyeing it. You don't have to mordant and then dye it every time. So you could add more layers to a piece of fabric or to a skein of yarn or to an already made dress or quilt. I think it just, it, it's a nice story. Yeah. And they're reflective of the environment where they were made and it's almost like a souvenir in that way, right? Because there's all of these mm-hmm. unpredictable factors or, or maybe they're sort of predictable, but they, they're hard to sort of make completely consistent from, from one, you know, experience to another, like where the, the plant was grown exactly. And, um, like if it, if you're using a, an extract, you know, mm-hmm. how it went through the extraction process, like how that went and then where it was died, like there's all these different pieces that make it, um, you know, have it, it a unique quality that maybe wouldn't be the same if you tried it a year later or a few months later. Yeah, absolutely. It's alive, you know, so we'll get one of the challenges of my job can be that because we do have our own line of naturally dyed yarn and fabric um, is that, you know, we'll get a batch of, let's say matter in and um, a year later, the matter, the crop has changed. And so now we're dying and we're not getting the same, color that we were getting a year before. And that color has a colorway attached to it. It's on the website. So we then go and we adapt our recipes to the new dye batch. Right. And that, that is hard because you, you have your own fabrics and your own yarns and you work with designers and you, you know, it has to be consistent, but it's Mm -hmm. sort of inherently an inconsistent process. And so you can't, you know, you can't, it can't look different (laughs) later on. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And then also, what about like price fluctuations as far as like when that crop is um, not as good, right? Is the the price of that dye of that extract is going to, is going to be elevated? Yep. There's a market rate for natural dyes. They're constantly changing. And we have a very, we hired a QuickBooks point of sale expert who came in and we map and track all of those changes behind the scenes so we understand, you know, the cost fluctuations for what we're doing. Yeah. I think that's something that maybe people don't understand or mm-hmm. just overlook, like the complexity of running a business that's based on this sort of fluctuating commodity, you know? Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. Um, and, and you dye fabrics as well. Will you tell us a little bit about the fabrics that you carry? Yeah. We carry all sorts of different fabric, just like we do with yarn. So we have the verb fabric and yarn, but then we also carry like in the yarn section, Quince and Company and Brooklyn Tweed. We tend to try to carry and support companies who are doing the processes as much as possible in the United States. And then in the fabric side, we have beautiful Merchant and Mills linens, and we have a line of fabric from India that's made of organic cotton that's hand-spun and hand-woven. And kind of we try to, again, source out places where we can understand who's making the fabric and see the processes that they're using. And so in our own kind of fabric dyeing, we usually dye um, linen or linen cotton blends, organic cotton and we have some indigo dyed uh, fabric in this shop right now. Um, and, you know, when customers come into the shop, um, I'm just wondering, you know, I think you're a maker. You, you do so many kinds of things. You, you know, you equally sew and knit, which I think is even unusual in and of itself. Obviously, you're a dyer. You do embroidery, quilting, and you've tried all of these other things too, like weaving, you uh, reeling silk and all kinds of things and <laughs> cooking and gardening. I mean, you really are the definition of kind of a maker. You do all of that stuff. And I just wonder when people come into the shop, um, you know, you probably really love kind of the more com- the complexity of it all yeah. um, and sort of making each thing unique and different and all of that kind of thing. And I just wonder when people come in and they, they maybe are seeking something very simple, like if there's ever that, a, a gap there between <laughs> your desire to explore and understand and, and the average consumer's desire to escape from their everyday life by doing something easy. Oh my goodness. This is the story of my life. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we definitely, um, things have changed. They've evolved, which is good. We still though, definitely a knitter comes in. They only want to see yarn. Like the fact that we have fabric, you know, is a little maybe insulting. Like that could all be yarn or a fabric person comes in and they just wish it was all fabric. Um, And I say it's 50-50, and the whole idea is you come to buy fabric to make a dress and yarn to make a sweater. So, yeah, it's important to have simplicity and simple projects. Um, So we've kind of – how we've dealt with that is to create samples in the store that are extremely simple. And I get it. I mean, I come home at night. I'm exhausted. If I want to make a very complicated sweater, I mean, I have to set time out in my life to do that. I can't just come home and sit on the couch and – you know, knit a crazy cabled asymmetrical sweater. So I definitely also relish in kind of the 
I just, um, I knit a Lori shawl by Carrie Bostick Hoge recently, and it's basically garter stitch that's in an asymmetrical triangle shape. And it was so delightful. <laughs> so um, we definitely have a lot of projects that are just extremely simple, um, cast on, cast off, sew, very easy to sew, easy to fit, not very complex fit wise for people. Um, and, you know, Melanie and I, we definitely had to work on that aspect of the natural dyer. She was great. She kept saying, you have to be more simple. You have to be more simple. And she's right. You know, there are definitely complex projects in the book, but there's also simple projects in the book. Sometimes I think too simple for people like, uh, my Northwoods hat project, you know, it's knit out of chunky yarn. You dye the yarn. I try to keep both processes as simple as possible, knowing that it's a two part process, which that in itself is kind of daunting for some. And, you know, people, added color work to their hats and you know all sorts of things I think there's a there's a challenge there sometimes between those two things um and and you need to cater to your customer right like your customer is the people who keep you in business and so you can't just say well that's not what I want to do so you know right exactly you need to meet them where they are and um and I'm sure you also provide um more complex or second second step kind of um projects as well but but yeah, and, and was there any hesitation as far as the book is concerned of including both um, yarn projects and sewing projects? Was there any feeling like, oh, well, maybe that's two different customers for a book and, you know, people might say, well, I can't use half the projects. I, I can just see some people thinking that. So was there any discussion about that? Oh, my goodness. So, um, well, the other thing to add to that is that most, so there's rare, there's not if any, natural dyeing books that really hone in on the um, process of using cellulose-based fibers. So so that means um, cotton and linen. They're more difficult to dye than protein-based fibers, wool and silk. And so, and wool and silk take dye easily. They're very, very vibrant. They're always beautiful. So when you look at most photos in natural dyeing books, they're including only wool and silk, and they're only giving the instructions to dye on wool and silk. And so we first had this thing where I was a little reluctant to include cellulose-based fibers, but we decided to go for it, which I do think was the best choice. Um, and it did help me grow as a dyer and as a writer and a teacher. Um, so we had that layer. And then, yes, the layer on top of that, which is that there's fabric and there's yarn. And then of course we had to have, um, ready-made things because there's people who want to do natural dyeing who don't know how to knit or sew. Um, and one of the amazing things that I came to learn through this process, I always think of, um, natural dyeing as something you would only maybe do if you already knew to knit and sew, like it's, you know, a process further down the path that you would want to try. And really we have a lot of people who are coming who this is their first textile practice, which I think is absolutely amazing, but I just had no idea. Right. So their entry point is through natural dyeing. And Mm -hmm. that was something that you didn't really necessarily realize in the past, but that writing this book taught you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And do you feel like you would have been ready to write this book prior? I mean, you knew about natural dyeing after you had sought out a teacher you know, locally to teach you in English how to do the, how to do it. Um, but do you feel like those years of owning verb and working with people one-on-one in, cl- in a class setting was instructive to you? And, and if so, like sort of in what way, like what did they teach you that you ended up being able to pull on when you were writing? 
Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I feel like every single day and all the hours I stood over a dipod are priceless in terms of my experience in writing the book. So one of the things is like, uh, in my production studio, we don't die by using teaspoons and tablespoons. We die using a percentage based system. And I, have tried to teach that in class, like in Dine 101 classes, and I see people's eyes just kind of glaze over. And so that was a huge part of the book, was writing it so it was in volume measurements. If you look deep enough, you can use a percentage-based system within my book, but only if you already know that. And so there, they kind of separated that out. So that was a really important thing to not have as the forefront of my book mm-hmm. and to keep, again, the math and like kind of the chemistry kind of as behind the scenes as possible, though it is there. So having both of them there is very important, but only when you're ready to go there, do you have to look at that and you don't ever even have to look at it. You can enjoy the natural dying process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I, as a person who's never done this, I didn't notice them. I mean, I I read the book um, and I, you know, I I can understand, okay, there is chemistry happening here, um, but I didn't sort of get bogged down by it. Good. My God. Yes. I I was so, I mean, I like was so anxious writing the book and putting it out there. And I have to say, to see people doing the projects and having them turn out and having people happy, it's just, Oh, it's so incredible. I'm so grateful. <laughs> but yeah, so that definitely influenced, um, I think my years of having to do reproducibility in my studio because of my production line is very, very important to understanding the process and teaching it, um, and helping people get, um, results that they like. You know, I had a lot of people come in, um, to my store over the years using different natural dye books and, feeling like they couldn't understand maybe what they did to get a certain result or that the materials they were using were kind of inconclusive. And so I felt like it was really important to include, you know, dyes that have a really strong history with light fastness, with ease of use, with reproducibility. Explain what light fastness is. Yeah. Light fastness is um, also referred to as color fastness. So, you know, how fast, um, a color fades and, you know, it's not bad that a color fades because in order to the chemicals you have to use in order to get something that doesn't fade is pretty intense, but we don't want your color fading for, I don't even know. I mean, I die with the intention that at least 50 years or a hundred years or something, you would have this color coming with you. I don't want it to fall out within five years of you making your project. And that's something when I asked earlier about sort of people's assumptions mm-hmm. about um, about natural dyeing and you said one of them is that it's toxic and the other is that it's not light fast. In other words, people feel like, yeah, you're going to dye that, you know, this brilliant shade of red, but after three washes, it'll be back to being sort of, you know, beige again or something yeah. like that. Yes. And that's not true if you if you're doing it right. If you're doing it right, I mean, there is, it's like magical, but it's, there's also science to it. Right. So, um, you know, while it's fun to go and wander into your backyard and take things and try to die with it and you, you might get 
color from those things, um, a lot of times those things will fade. And for some people, everyone has different expectations around this, right? Like I can't die for my line at verb with anything willy nilly because the client that's coming to us is used to a certain amount of color fastness in their life. And, but let's say I'm just doing an art project, um, or, you know, you just want to discover kind of the world around you and you're okay with redying something. That's fine. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's really about the end use and the end user and mm-hmm. how they, how they want it. And one of the things I was most surprised about, um, mm-hmm. that I don't know, maybe other people would be surprised about too, is how hard it is to make green. I oh. feel like, right. Your assumption is like mm-hmm. everything in nature is green. And mm-hmm. so green's got to be like the number one easiest thing to, to die with because there's so much to choose from. And yet I'm um, looking at, you know, you have, um, some pages of swatches that you've made on both the, mm-hmm. uh, the protein-based fibers and the cellulose-based fibers, um, and they're beautiful, and they kind of go through the whole spectrum, and there's, like, no green. And I'm like, where's the green? So tell us why why is it so hard to make green, and what is the best way to kind of get close to green? Yeah, so yellow is the most predominant color that one is going to get from nature. That's the easiest color to get, and it also tends to be the most fugitive color. Um, fugitive means that it fades fastest. And so the yellows I included in the book are yellows that have a good history of connecting with cloth for long periods of time. You know, this thing, uh, I refer to as shade cards that are in the book and they, I've listed kind of the most commonly found natural dyeing extracts available. So easy to find on the internet or maybe in your local store, like your, your local yarn store, if you live maybe in New York or the Bay area. If we look at that, there's pink cochineal and there's matter red and then you've got this big swath of yellows and then you end kind of with logwood purple and if you look at what you're wearing um most of us are not usually wearing yellow um sometimes we're wearing red or maybe pink and purple a little more popular but green it's a very popular color to wear (laughs) So what I kind of asked the reader to do is dig a little bit deeper and start combining those different colors on the shade card to make even more complex colors or a simple color like green, but also complex oranges, magentas, you know, there's thousands of colors that we love to wear that are not on the shade card. For To make green on wool and silk, you combine a yellow dye with the logwood purple and you can combine it in different increments and you can get different shades of green. Depending upon the yellow, the undertone of that yellow, again, that will influence the shade of green that you get. The other way to make green is you dye something with indigo, which is a completely kind of different process than all other dyes that are in the book, and it's set apart a little bit for that reason. And then you put that indigo dyed piece of yarn or fabric or your dress or what have you into a dye bath of yellow, and you get this very beautiful emerald green. So two completely different styles of greens, the yellow-based purple green versus the kind of indigo yellow emerald green. Right. And so green is really 
um, a combination, always a combination. Um, yeah, I think that's really neat. And uh, it's just something I, I hadn't realized until I, I read this book. So um, so that's really cool. And and for verb, I mean, it sounds as though you do carry, um, you carry textiles that are made by other makers um, besides your sort of in-house lines. Yeah. And so are you going to like TNNA and the trade shows? No, we don't, we don't wholesale our yarn a lot. We do have some stuff that we are able to sell to other shops that you can find. Um, we have sewing patterns that we drafted in house and we have natural dyeing kits that go with the book. Um, and then in terms of me going to purchase for the store, I, I actually don't go. I would go because I love seeing my friends who are designers and who own yarn companies and what have you. Um, but honestly, we do a lot of projects at Verb that um, we work with farmers and we mill our own yarn from locally sourced wool. And, you know, we have a budget and I kind of look at the budget and I think, well, I could go to this trade show, which, um, you know, costs money. We, we have to fly either in the past to Ohio or, you know, to DC this year and, um, or I could take that money and I could create a new line of yarn. Mm-hmm. So in the past, I've chosen to create new lines of California wool yarn. This year, we're going to go to Iceland and I'm going to go meet a natural dyer in Iceland and do some textile research there. So I think they're extremely like valuable, but in my world, um, Quince and Brooklyn Tweed, which are two of the larger companies we carry, they don't go to TNNA. And we, you know, at some point don't have enough room in the store for more yarn. You have relationships with the people that you need to buy from. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the trip to Iceland? What is what is the end goal of that? Good question. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my book is kind of, I look at it as the end of about a 10 to 15 year cycle. Um and process of learning. And it was kind of a brain dump, which is amazing and also kind of intense um, because I've just been working on this for so long. And <laughs> like, where, where do I go from here? Um, so it's been kind of a time of reflection for me about what I enjoyed and what worked um, over the past 10 to 15 years and kind of what needs, you know, some work and things like that. And so, yeah, I have this desire to essentially document more in depth kind of the umami of natural dyeing. So looking at dyeing with lichens and mushrooms and um, block printing and rice paste resists in Japan. We do have um, two 60-gallon California grown indigo fermentation vats at the store. There's maybe 15 of them in the entire United States. That was a five-year project we were working on. And I would love to go to Japan and see that in process. Um, it involves composting and fermentation. So yeah, going and kind of documenting those processes and meeting those people behind those processes that have been helping kind of keep them alive. Um, and I don't know where that will ultimately go, but that's kind of um, my current interest. So and Iceland is playing into that. I and think that it's interesting to think about the the role that a book can play in that kind of journey because um and I found this for myself too that you work 
for a long time in this internally driven way to know everything about certain things. Um, and so it's like this, I don't know, there's some reason why you feel like compelled. It's like a compulsion to do this and, and like master it and become the person who knows about this. And then, um, and then a, a book is a really good place to put that. Like it, it can be, as you said, a brain dump. It's like it goes into this book and everything goes into this book and then it's your book. And then afterward, you know, sort of once it's out in the world, there's like this sort of restlessness or sense of like mm-hmm. now, now, like I've put it somewhere, right? I, I did it. <laughs> and it's like, what do I do now? Um, and in some ways, I think that's a such a good gift because it frees you to be able to do mm-hmm. the next thing. Yeah. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it any better. Yeah. I have definitely found that to be true with myself and it helps you grow because you were able to sort of let it go. Not that you're going to say goodbye to it, but it's right. like you can sort of say goodbye to a particular phase and yep. be like, I'm ready now to do the next thing for me, you know? And sometimes that comes with some like bad feelings like, well, I, I, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> You know, where you're like, what do I, what's, yeah, yeah, right? Like that bad feeling of like, I don't know, if you're a very internally driven person, which I totally see that you are, and I feel like I am as well, it's, it, it can feel hard to not have a thing that you're driven toward or to find the new thing. Yeah. And then again, it comes back too to like, okay, so where is the textile community here at? Where is my customer at? And that, you know, I'm just trying to go to like a more obscure place. And I think a lot of them already feel like I kind of exist already in an obscure place. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, it's kind of an interesting, yeah. Yeah, so, I hear you. Um, uh-huh. So let's just, um, the last sort of my last piece about um, uh-huh. about the store, it's just about some of the teachers that you've brought in. Oh, and yeah. I'd love to hear kind of some of the highlights of this year, um, either people who've already come or people who are scheduled to come so people know what's what's coming and what, you know, who are you bringing in? Yeah, I mean, one of the most amazing things for me in working at Verb has been this kind of like amazing parade of talent that have come through Verb's doors and perspectives and so grateful for that and um, being able to meet these just amazing people. One of the people I'm most excited about who doesn't live too far, lives about two hours from Verb, her name's Jodi Alexander and she's a book and textile artist, just like an amazing artist. And she's teaching this class called Boro Bags. Boro is this Japanese tradition of mending and patching. And you make kind of your own fabric through this patching technique and then you sew it into a bag. Um, And I think the product, the kind of what you're making is really beautiful and the process is very beautiful. Um, Let's see here. Um, Katrina Roderbaugh was in town recently, another artist who I really admire, and her and I had a um, slow fashion forum, and Sonia Phillip came and spoke. We all were on a panel together. Um, So Sonia was there, and Alice Wu, who was one of the co-founders of a really amazing fabric and um, 
clothing company called Feral Child and Sasha Doerr, who's an amazing natural dyer who teaches at California College of the Arts. And we just talked about, you know, slow fashion and the different ways that we kind of interacted with it. Um, and that was amazing. And we had a really, really amazing turnout. Um, and I'd love to continue those conversations. And, you know, each of us wears clothing and each of us is around nature in some way. And so just to hear different people's perspectives and journeys through that um, is really meaningful to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wish I had been able to come. And I had Sonia Philip on the podca- mm. podcast a while back, way back in the beginning. Um, and she's got a really interesting and um, worth hearing about journey and yeah. making her own clothing and her relationship with her body and, and yep. representing that body in the world through clothing that she's made for it and uh, for herself. And I, I really, I think that's, uh, she's got a really great story. So that, that sounds great. And I love that you're bringing people in and kind of bringing conversation. So it's not just teaching, but it's also sort of an education in a different kind of way. Okay. I want to get to your recommendations. Um, before we do, I did have one question, which is about equipment, which is about your gloves. Um, I feel like one of the things with dyeing fabric is um you need good gloves so just will you just tell us briefly what gloves you wear yeah the Casabella line of gloves are what I have historically worn because you're taking them on and off all the time and they're easy to take on and off and they just fit really well and they're a little expensive but I think if your hands are going to be in gloves a lot they're totally worth it okay that's a good recommendation I know it seems simple but I don't know. I just think that that's a good um, thing to recommend to people. So um, you wanted to talk about uh, the work of Wendell Berry about creating a local economy. Yes. Yeah. I just am totally in awe of Wendell Berry. And he is a author and poet and visionary and farmer who lives in Kentucky. And he's written at least 50 books. And he writes a lot on a local economy and how important that is and the earth and being in alignment and in harmony with the earth and that it's a balance and really respecting and preserving that balance. And I just find his work really, really powerful. Um, Is there a particular book or um, something that you would particularly recommend for people to kind of get started or because it sounds like he's got a big body of work? The book that I am very connected with at the moment are a series of his essays, and it's in what I think his newest book. It came out in 2015, and it's called Our Only World. Excellent. And you also wanted to recommend a sewing pattern um, by Elizabeth Duvivier, also past um, uh, guest on the Walsh Apps podcast. And she, she runs Squam, the Squam Art Workshops, and she has a really neat sewing pattern out, the Squam Smock. Um, so have you tried this pattern out yet or? Yes. And so it's actually called, I wrote squam smock on your note. I'm sorry. It's actually called the Westwater tunic. I always call it the squam smock. Ah, well, it looks like, I know exactly what it looks like. And so when I saw that written, I was like, yep, that's what it is. But I didn't even look to make sure. <laughs> it's called the, okay. It's called yes. the Westwater tunic. Okay. 
I just always, when I look at it, I think, yes, that makes so much sense. You're making things at Squam and you would make this smock and it's called the Squam Smock. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, now we've renamed it, whether Elizabeth likes it or not. So. <laughs> she probably does it, but there you go. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, the, the real name of it is the Westwater Tunic. And yeah, I'm teaching at Squam in June. And congratulations. Uh, That's, is that your first time going or have you yes. been? Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so excited. And so uh, when Elizabeth and I were discussing my classes, she told me how she started this new project where she's working with this woman, also a Squam attendee named Sam Lamb, and that they had been working on a sewing pattern. And of course, I couldn't wait to get my hands on it and to sew one of my own. And I recently purchased a new sewing machine and I thought this is a very kind of simple straightforward pattern to get to know my new sewing machine so it's been a wonderful time just making this pattern and um I blogged about it recently so there's notes on that but uh it's is, a is that are you going to be incorporating that pattern into your teaching at all or that's just separate it's separate, but I have this idea that I thought would be fun where maybe I would put the call out. I don't know. I could see it in a lot of different ways, whether it's asking people to make a smock and to wear it to my dyeing classes to protect their clothing, because that would be a good idea anyway, or maybe that they could cut out pieces for a squam smock and they could come and like dye it in indigo vat during class or something like that. But I definitely could see a tie-in, not yeah. from a point of view, but from like a dyeing um, point of view. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. And I love to wear um, like a smock kind of dress like that over jeans. Like I yeah. just feel like that's my most comfortable uniform. <laughs> like if I'm if I'm wearing that, I'm like I'm happy. Like I can I feel creative. I feel like good. I'd like to wear like a like a dress over jeans. So that's absolutely yeah. <laughs> yeah. And who doesn't always need another set of pockets? You know? Yes, I like. definitely <laughs> do. And um, even if it's just to put my phone so I can listen to podcasts while I'm working, yep. there's nothing worse than like wearing leggings and being like. God, there's nowhere yeah. to stick your phone. So, yeah. Yes, you need a squam smock. Okay, this is great. Um, well, uh, Christine, where can people reach out to you if they would like to send you a message? Like, where's the best place for them to find you online? Okay. Um, my email, of course, info at a verb for keeping warm.com. Um, is a great way to get in touch. Um, I'm also on Instagram and I'm constantly kind of posting photos of the dyeing process and what we're working on in the dye studio. Um, it's, uh, our acronym is A-V-F-K-W for a verb for keeping warm. And yeah, those are probably the two main places if you want to get in touch. Super. That's super. So people can feel free to reach out if they have something that they want to talk with you about. And that's wonderful. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you for having me, Abby. You've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. And you can visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox. And thank you to Textilia for sponsoring today's episode. Textilia is the online sewing community you've been waiting for. Built for all types of sewists, including garment makers, quilters, and textile artists, as well as business owners. Plan and document your projects, log your stash, search the community-managed database of patterns and fabrics, and connect with other members and businesses, all in one easy-to-use website. 
Join today at textilia.com. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.